Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. Hey there, everybody. Welcome to Rico Bronia. As the Mets lose two out of three to the Minnesota Twins, they do salvage the final game of this series. I wonder, I wonder. How many Mets fans, even those that are listening to the Rico, were locked in on a Sunday afternoon, week one of the NFL season, and enjoyed every second of that incredible pitching duel between Pablo Lopez and Tyler McGill? I'm assuming the number is low, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe no Jets, maybe no Giants. Maybe people were just sitting there at 2 o'clock saying, I need some Mets twins. I had it on in my rotation because with the YouTube TV NFL Sunday ticket, which I got to hand it to them, it got off to a good start. There were no glitches or anything like that. I had all the games set up. I had the Met game set up. I did not have the Yankee game set up. And I don't know if you guys heard about this. They got no hit into the freaking 11th inning of the game. And then crazy stuff happened. But as far as the Mets are concerned, we'll go game by game, and then there's some broader things we'll talk about, including Buck Showalter maybe reacting to the negativity of creating lineups based on opponents, and also a new rumor, a new name to kind of think about over the next few weeks as we head into this offseason, and that's maybe the best player of our generation, Mike Trout potentially being available. So we'll get to all that stuff later. We'll start off with the opener. I think the big positive out of Friday night, and really the only thing you could take out of Friday night, outside of just beating your head against the wall because the bullpen continues to stink, and guys take turns having implosions, is that Kodai Senga, on a night where his command was not great, on a night where he wasn't his best, and he wasn't his most dominant against a pretty good Minnesota lineup, gave you another quality start. <coughs> and I think that Everything that's happened since the trade deadline around Senga specifically has been a major positive. He has, at least for me, I hope for many of my fellow Met fans, eased any concerns about what he is and what he could be. 
Because to me, one of the most impressive things you can do to prove you're an ace or when you are an ace is to be good to really solid when you don't have your best stuff, you don't have your best command, and your off night turns into a six-inning, two-run kind of performance. And that's one of the things I always used to marvel about with Jake when he was here, that the Grom's worst starts were still good starts. You know, they weren't good for him, but he kept you in a baseball game. And you go look at Friday night's game, they ended up losing, obviously, and there's a myriad of reasons why. Offensively, they did nothing after a quick start. And like we talked about with this bullpen, there's nobody in this bullpen you could trust. So guys take turns on imploding. And in Friday night's case, it was Sean Reed Foley, another guy who has no chance to be on the roster next year. And if he is on the roster next year, that's a problem. But Senga's command for the first time in probably two months was off, and he was able to battle through it. And that's one of the things we've seen from Kodai throughout his rookie season. So when you examine this quote-unquote irrelevant part of the Mets season that they've been on, which has now lasted over a month and a month and a half almost, and we still have 20 games to go, and we've got the rest of September where, let's face it, they're playing out the string. Now that's, that's what we're looking at. So you try to find things that matter and find things that you can look at. And I talked last time on the Rico, we'll readdress it because we got some emails about it, that there isn't much you can take out of performances over the final month of the year. Well, Kodai's saying we're not looking at the final month. We're looking at the whole resume. We're looking at his entire rookie season. And, and to me, he's the biggest positive. Now, when we look at 2023, and obviously there's tons of negatives, and we'll spend a lot of time going through that during the offseason. The biggest positive has been the season of Kodai and the development of Kodai. So as frustrated as I was when Sean Reed Foley lit the game on fire, and also there was another moment in this game I was frustrated, by the way, which included Senga, not to kill him, but the Mets take the lead, and instantly we got to see Carlos Correa tie the game up. That was a pain in the ass. Like, that's not something anybody wants to see. I don't have ill will necessarily towards Carlos Correa. I don't dislike him. I don't even blame him for what happened uh, during the offseason. But I don't want to see him perform well. And I don't want to see him perform well against the Mets. And I don't want to see that decision to walk away from Correa be one that we regret. So the Mets are down early. They score the two runs in the fourth inning. And boom, Carlos Correa ties the game up. And I'm going to spend a little time on Correa a little bit, too, because I think it's worth reexamining what happened and if we should be thrilled that it didn't happen in light of seeing him for the last three days in this three-game series. That was my one big negative with Kodai, giving up the home run to Carlos Correa. But overall, he delivered six innings. He walked four guys, which is a lot, and something he hadn't done in a while. How about this? It is the first time since June. So you're looking at three months since the middle of June. Yeah, three months. My math is right. That he walked three or more guys in a game. And that was one of the big critiques early. Hoff used to say it right here on the Rico. I walks too many guys. He hasn't. He did on Friday night, but he hasn't really throughout the season. So he gave him the six quality innings. He threw 101 pitches. I can't complain with him coming out of the game. And then we get Sean Reed Foley. And this is the part of playing out the string that is so difficult to watch. When you look at this lineup, a lot of guys in this lineup are either going to be here next year, we really want them to be next year, 
or guys that are almost auditioning for next year. Whether we take a lot out of their performance or not, Ronnie Mauricio, Brett Beatty, to a degree even DJ Stewart these days, Mark Vientos, they are legitimate possibilities for the 2024 roster. So when they play well or they struggle, you could at least say you're watching something that matters. When we have to watch in a tie game in the seventh inning, Sean Reed Foley, and I'm happy for this guy. He came back from a major injury. Good for him. But when we got to watch him implode the game, a part of you says, well, it doesn't matter. He's not going to be on the team next year. But then the other part of you is like, well, I'm watching him, though. And that's where it feels like a waste of time. Like, we're experts on playing out the string as Met fans. We've seen this a lot. This is not a new world for us. For our friends who are Yankee fans, brand new world. They don't really know what it's like having a meaningless month. Even the years where they missed the playoffs, they were sort of in it until the very end. This is the first time for them where they're playing completely irrelevant games. We, on the other hand, were used to it. And the thing that's always bothered me over the years is when you watch guys who have no shot to be on the roster, or if they're on the roster, we're screwed. I hate to bring this name up again because it's the one name that jumps out at me and it's rather recent. Whenever I think of playing out the string with veteran guys with no chance to be on your team, I think of Nori Aoki. That's who I think of. I don't know why. But at least I'm giving you a recent example. I'm not going back to 1997. But they did lose this game 5-2. to two, five to two. Sean Reed Foley stinks. They got nothing offensively. They had four hits in this game. Tim LaCastro had one of them. Uh, it was just a, kind of a nothing performance. Just a nothing performance. The positive is... Kodai Sangin. Now we get to game two. And it's so funny to me. Game two, in a lot of ways, even though, you know, David Peterson was okay. In fact, his pitching line's not even that far off from Kodai. But game two is very, very similar to game one. And here's why the Mets scratch out a couple of runs, which they got very early in this game. Brandon Nimmo hit a leadoff home run, and he continues to have a pretty good power season. So they scratch out a run early. They were up 2-0 before you could blink. And then David Peterson immediately gives it back, or at least <coughs> an inning later gives it back, 2-2. They go down 3-2. Peterson is able to get through the six innings, give you a quality performance. He still straggles that line of, yeah, it was good. It was decent. But it doesn't move the needle on how you feel about him if that makes any sense. Because I think there's a part of us still watching Peterson and McGill, even though most of us have made our decisions about what we think about them and what their roles should be in 2024. I said last time on the Rico, there's not much they can do of anything that's going to change that. But yeah, we still watch them with maybe a, a sliver of hope. And Peterson was okay. You know, but besides giving up the lead, which stinks, he gave him six innings. He allowed three runs. That's a quality start. If they were getting a lot of that earlier this season, this season could have played out very, very differently. But it's the same thing in terms of close game, quality performance by the starter, and now we've got to hand the baseball to the bullpen. So in the roulette of, okay, which reliever is going to take a giant dump on the mound today, the guy that drew the straw is Drew Smith, who again, <laughs> I think we've all come to this conclusion. Drew Smith may be on the roster next year. He may be a little different. Then the Sean Reed Foley's of the world and the Phil Bickford's of the world, who may be just filling up a seat this season. Drew Smith may be on the roster next year, but there ain't a chance in hell any of us trust him. 
There's not a chance in hell when we're breaking down the offseason and we're previewing 2024, any of us are going to say, well, you never know what you're going to get from Drew Smith because he's mostly been awful. And he was awful on Saturday. So a game that was 3-2, to two, a game that was close, gets completely blown open when he gives up four runs in the seventh inning. Then you get the power late. DJ Stewart hits a home run as he returns from a side issue. Pete Alonzo hits a home run, which is enjoyable because I think all of us just want to see Pete hit as many home runs as humanly possible. I don't know if it means much at the end of the day. I don't know if it moves the, the needle on the Mets trading him or not. We're thinking about trading him or not, but he's our guy. So keep hitting him. And for Pete, that was 43. 43 home runs. Crazy, man. I mean, it's not that long ago. We were sitting down as Met fans in the 90s, and the home run record was well below that. And here we are, Pete, owning the Met record books. So that was nice to see, but it was another loss. <coughs> this, this game, by the way, was a very tough game to watch. You know, I, I've always said throughout the year, uh, I DVR a lot of games. A Saturday afternoon in the fall with nice weather, 2 o'clock in the afternoon? Because I, I have become accustomed over the last few months that the Mets play Saturday night games, and purely selfishly, because I think whenever we talk about start times and what we prefer, prefer, it's all about our lifestyle. It's all about you know our work hours. Because I was going to talk during the offseason about what start times y'all prefer, because the Mets sent out a survey a few months ago kind of asking, hey, what start times do you like? And it's, it's a selfish thing. Like, what I prefer, because it benefits the life I have, is far different than what would have benefited me 15 years ago, which means to a lot of people listening, would benefit you. But the one thing, tell me if you agree with me on this, a Saturday at two o'clock, I don't know what lifestyle that would benefit. Like, I don't know what kind of Met fan, whether you're a teenager listening, whether you're in your 40s or 80s, or you have kids or you don't have kids, I don't know who wants road games specifically, because it's not like you have an option of going, a Saturday afternoon game in the fall. I don't know. So I was going back and forth on this. I was like, I, I mean, I could check the score. It, the season's over. I don't have to sit down and watch every pitch. Or do I DVR it? So it turned out to be like a real mix between the two. It was my son's birthday. My son's birthday is actually on Monday, but he had his big party on Saturday. So I happened to see the score. Like I wasn't, I wasn't checking for it. But when I happen to see a score, I DVR. I usually get pissed off. I didn't get pissed. I was like, oh, okay. They're, it's 2-2. Because I think I saw it in the third inning. Then I went back and mostly watched it at 11 o'clock at night when everybody was passed out. When the Alabama-Texas game was well decided, I checked it out. And I think a part of that is it's just a weird, it's a difficult start time. And then, like I mentioned at the top of the pot, I don't know who the hell's watching a game on a Sunday afternoon, week one of the NFL season. I get why that's a start time. Sunday afternoons are traditional. But I do wonder, as I do this pod, how many people watch the games? <laughs> and I don't blame you, by the way. I don't say that in any kind of judgmental tone. Trust me. Uh, but yeah, Saturday sucked. I think is the moral of the story. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. 
Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. As far as Sunday's game is concerned, as the Mets are trying to salvage a three-game series against Minnesota, the good, the absolute good is Tyler McGill. And it goes back to what I said about David Peterson. Okay, great. Tyler McGill went out there, only allowed two hits, put a million guys on base because he walked a ton of guys but was able to get through it. It was almost the, your, your best of Tyler McGill because that's what he does even in his best performances. He'll find a way to get through it. He'll make the big pitch when he has to, but he'll put 100 guys on base. And to his credit, not just him, but the Met bullpen as well, they held the Minnesota Twins to 0 for 10 with runners in scoring position, which is a part of why the Mets, McGill leading it, the bullpen taking charge after, was able to complete a shutout in which the Minnesota Twins had 10 base runners. And until the very end, starting with McGill, ending with Adam Adovino, they did a great job sweeping or swooping in and out of trouble. Now, the other thing about this game, and this is our biases, we all have this. If I had asked you a year ago, six months ago, What do you think of Pablo Lopez? Would you trade, name the young player for Pablo Lopez? I think the rumors during the offseason was Brett Beatty for Pablo Lopez. Marlins end up trading him to Minnesota for Luis Arise. We know how that's worked out as far as what Arise has done for Miami. Well, Pablo Lopez has gone out this season and had a very, very, very good season. Very good season. And by very good, Why I think he's had a very good season is the fact that in this day and age in which guys don't do it, he has a chance to throw 200 innings. And to me, that's a very good year. You throw 200 innings this era and you've got, let's say, a sub-4 ERA, you're having a great year. That's how I view it. And he's got a better than sub-4 ERA. It's about 3.5 ERA. But when you think of Pablo Lopez, because of our biases, you think of a guy that we've destroyed. You have to. You think of Jeff McNeil owning him. You have to. It's, it's only natural. So during the offseason, when there were rumors floated about, hey, 
if they sign Correa, Beatty for Pablo Lopez, most of us, myself included, said, nah. Meanwhile, think about what Pablo Lopez is. He's a 27-year-old innings eater who's solid. And he was brilliant on Sunday. I mean, he just, he ate the Mets up all day, struck out a million guys. We finally saw the best of Pablo Lopez because usually the Mets bomb Pablo Lopez. I'm not rewriting history. We'll see what Brett Beatty turns into, obviously. So I can't declare that not making that trade is a disaster. Certainly in the short term it is. Because when you look at the fine line between the Mets having the season they ended up having and maybe it being slightly different, if they had made that trade in this alternate universe during the off year, Beatty for Lopez, the Mets don't sell. I mean that. They don't. Because Lopez would have been making starts every five days. Now, I guess you could say, well, do they not sign one of the free agent starting pitchers they signed? So are we eliminating a Jose Quintana? Are we eliminating? Who are we eliminating? Or is it an addition? I would think of it almost in it as in addition. <coughs> and if they do that, and Pablo Lopez puts up the numbers he's put up in Minnesota, this season's different. Kind of like how if Quintana never got hurt and pitches the way he's pitched this season and the way he closed last year with St. Louis, it's the same thing the Mets never sell. One starting pitcher every five days being as good as what Quintana's been since he's come back or as good as what Lopez has been this year changes the entire season. But it was funny to me that we finally saw the good Pablo Lopez. We finally saw him come out and just dominate. But the story was the fact that McGill, followed by a Met bullpen that, as I mentioned, everyone takes turns blowing up, did not blow up. They delivered. And so guys that I still don't trust, guys that I still cringe at thinking about trying to make big pitches in 2024, Phil Bickford, Trevor Gott, got the job done. <coughs> as did Brooks Riley, who will be in the bullpen in 2024, I presume. And as did Adam Adovino, who put himself in a little bit of trouble when the Mets finally took the lead up 2-0, but was able to squirt his way out of it. And then we get to how the Mets finally did take the lead. Because this was a 0-0 game. Remember, they couldn't hit Pablo Lopez. And by the way, the final line on Pablo Lopez was absurd. Eight innings, two hits, no runs, 14 strikeouts, and no walks. But, and I should mention this, he did hit two guys. He hit Francisco Lindor, and he hit Francisco Alvarez. And when he hit Francisco Alvarez in the hand, Francisco initially stayed in the game, but then he came out of the game. So mark that up as another example of a Met being hit, maybe another example of a Met being hurt, and certainly another example of the Mets not doing a goddamn thing about it. The beat rolls on. But they get to the bullpen. They get to Gavin Jacks, of all people. And now the Mets finally have themselves an opportunity against the pitcher that maybe, just you know, it's possible, maybe they'll put something together against. Maybe. And they did. Lindor hits that little bloop double that falls in the left field. McNeil falls behind in the count after threatening to lay down a bump but get hit by a pitch. So you set up with two on and nobody out. Pete strikes out. And then DJ Stewart. And you got to admit, you have to admit this, Mets fans. He's making things difficult. He is. He's making you think. 
He's making you wonder. Because DJ Stewart could fit something I described earlier. Remember I described the guy who you know is not going to be on the team next year, but he's there. DJ Stewart is 29 years old. He's, I think, going to turn 30 soon. So he's not a prospect. He's a guy that met signed during the offseason, invited him to spring training, actually had a really good spring training, and he's been awesome since August 10th or whatever that date is, August 15th. As an everyday player, he did miss a few games with the side issue. The numbers for DJ Stewart are undeniable. He's got a 980 OPS. He's hit 11 home runs. And the other thing that's really underrated, and I guess this, this is for us geeks that are still watching this team, because it's easy to see his numbers and see he's hitting home runs, but he's actually not bad in right field, which I never would have stereotyped. Like, think about how many good plays DJ Stewart has made in right field. So you pause for a second and you wonder, is DJ Stewart kind of in that Nori Aoki group? Or is DJ Stewart a gem maybe the Mets found? Is it possible that DJ Stewart, even at 29, 30 years old, is just a guy they found who's developing late, who with this opportunity that's been handed to him, is going to say, hey, I'm an everyday player. Or at least I'm a guy that should have a major role on a team. Here's how I would view it right now. I am not putting this guy in the Hall of Fame, and I'm not even making him the everyday right fielder next year, and I'm not making him the everyday DH next year. But DJ Stewart has earned being on this team next year. And DJ Stewart has earned hey, if he continues to hit next year, maybe there is something with him. So I'm kind of putting my foot in the water, but I'm not jumping in the water. But I'm also not throwing him out. It's the middle ground. It's that part of me that says, it's probably nothing. He's probably going to go down in Met history as a guy that just got hot in the final two months of an irrelevant season. But I'm not willing to guarantee it and throw him out. I'm not willing to write him off the roster. I think DJ Stewart has earned himself a roster spot in 2024. How much playing time has he earned? I mean, right now, I wouldn't make him an everyday player. I wouldn't write him down in pen as the left-handed DH. I'm not there yet. But I would give him that opportunity to continue to impress and then maybe become that guy. So to be more specific, what does that mean? It means when he goes to spring training next year, I don't think he's battling for a roster spot. I wouldn't put, you know, 25 games in March and rank that over what he's done for the last month at the major league level against major league talent. So I wouldn't put him as a guy that's battling for a roster spot. I'd put him as a guy that's on my roster, not as an everyday player, but he's going to find his way to get at-bats. And if he hits, different conversation. If he hits, maybe in the middle of May next year, we're saying, hey, this is undeniable now. The guy's got to be an everyday player. That's how I view G.J. Stewart. Am I crazy? I don't think I'm being naive. If I was being naive, I'd say he's the everyday right fielder, F. Starling Marte. But I think there are scenarios, whether it's Marte not recovering well from what could be another groin surgery, whether it's the young guys not performing with opportunities next year, where, yeah, D.J. could fall into more opportunities again. But it's tough not to be impressed by what he's done. It's tough to just completely ignore that. So we'll keep an eye on it. That's for sure. Uh, Quick comment about Brett Beatty. A couple of things about Brett Beatty. (laughs) Obviously, he's not hit. 
That's the obvious part. Even with his recall from AAA, he has not hit. He hasn't hit lefties. He hasn't hit righties. He hasn't hit anybody. But his defense has looked significantly better. And that's a positive, and it should be mentioned, and that's great. With that said, Brett Beatty's future as a major leaguer is tied a hell of a lot more to his offense than it is to his improvement at third base. His improvement at third base is nice. It's great to see, but he can't be a 590 OPS guy. These at-bats for Brett Beatty right now are significant because if he continues to struggle, I don't know how you view what he can earn in spring training. Like if Brett Beatty finishes by hitting 205 with a 575 OPS and it kind of continues down that road, how do we view him in the offseason? How do we view him in spring training if he has another big spring? How do we view him? Can he win the third base job? Can he win the left-handed DH job? So you want to see something out of Brett. Like I said before, I, I don't want to overrate the really good, or I don't want to overrate the good and the bad, but sometimes the really good and the really bad jump out at you. But I do want to compliment his defense. It's been a lot better. The other thing that was fascinating was Friday night. Friday night, Dallas Keuchel started for Minnesota. And based on Buck's story to Gary Cohen that I kind of went nuts about last week, where he changes his philosophy based on the opponent that you owe it to teams to kind of manage differently based on your opponent. I think we all presume because Buck said, Hey, I'm starting Beatty against the lefty. I wouldn't do that in another scenario. Well, on Friday night against a Minnesota team that while they're not in the national league, they are in a pennant race, which according to Buck, I thought mattered. Like I thought that was a thing. They're in a pennant race. I think right now Minnesota is seven games up on Cleveland, so it's not tooth and nail, but they're, they're battling for a playoff spot. They're certainly ahead. Now, I don't know Buck's mindset. Maybe Buck says, hey, they're far enough ahead where I don't have to honor the pennant race. I'm not sure. But he had Brett Beatty in the lineup against the lefty. And when I saw that, I thought to myself, okay. Now, and I didn't think to myself, oh, he must listen to the Rico. I certainly didn't think that. I thought maybe ownership got to him. Now, Noah Gattel wrote an email about this. I want to read it and we can analyze it. Noah writes, hey, Evan, can't you see the real reason Buck is planning on sitting Beatty against lefties? He's trying to protect him. Beatty just got sent down to AAA because he couldn't handle failing at this level. Now he's back and Buck is not going to put him in a position to fail again. He wants him to go into the offseason with confidence. Now, maybe he plays him against lefties or two to see how it goes. And if Beatty hits, he stays in the lineup. But if he doesn't, Buck has now laid the groundwork to only use him in situations that are most favorable to him. Buck's doing what he always does, getting you to bitch and moan about him and take the spotlight off the player. <laughs> Beatty's confidence is fragile right now. Buck is smart to protect him, Noah. So it's a great thought, by the way. Here's my disagreement. If the reason for not playing Beatty against the lefty was that, I would understand it. Disagree or not, I get it. That's a good, well-thought-out point, and we've talked about it in the past. I remember when Michael Conforto played against Madison Bumgarner. This was years ago. After a great April, he took an 0-4 against Mad Bum, started to struggle immediately after that, ended up in AAA. And for whatever reason, myself included, we thought back to that game that's kind of like a bad turning point for Conforto, which is why you don't throw every young lefty against a left-handed pitcher. Totally get it. <coughs> but my counter to that 
is Buck's the one who gave the reasoning of the pennant race. Like, we're not debating necessarily, should Beatty face lefties? We could have that debate. It's a worthy debate because it's something we care about as Met fans. But I thought where we would all be on the same side was that Buck's reasoning was flawed. And his reasoning through Gary Cohen was their opponent. That should be irrelevant. If your point is, he's just saying that to take the attention away from Beatty, it worked. I give him that. If this was some master plan to have us talk about something else, great, it worked. But my issue wasn't only centered around Beatty's got to face everybody. I know he's struggling against lefties. And I totally get your point of, hey, he's got 20 games left. You've even said, Evan, I don't put that much in performance over this kind of sample size. Why not have him succeed more instead of throwing him to the wolves against Patrick Corbin and Dallas Keigel? Fine. It, that's a different discussion. The discussion that was brought up by Buck and Gary Cohen was it's based on who they're playing. And that's crazy. And that's what I completely disagree with. <coughs> When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Fred Solomon writes, why? I'm sitting here at Target Field. How about that? I'm dumb enough to fly to go watch this team, and I'm disgusted by the non-competitive at-bats. Alvarez, Vientos, Beatty's. Beatty, they all look lost up there. I know it doesn't matter, and my head says they should lose to secure a better draft pick, but it's so goddamn demoralizing watching this team play. Yeah, I, I battle it when I watch these games. I want to see them win. I don't care about draft picks. I care about draft picks, but I don't. You know what I mean? Like, I care about it. But when I'm sitting there on a Friday night watching my baseball team play, it's tough to have that be on my mind, especially with the whole lottery situation. What I am curious about is going to Minnesota. I got on Tiki the other day because Tiki was calling the Vikings uh, Buccaneers game in Minnesota. So he was there on Friday. So I said to him, well, what are you doing Friday night? He's like, ah, I'm going out for a fancy dinner. Fancy dinner should be a target field watching Kodai. And that's where I disagree with him and basically everyone else on the show. Yes, the Mets stink. But a chance to see another stadium? A chance to see a road game? Uh, Many, many a road game that I have seen, I have seen in circumstances that are less than ideal in terms of where the Mets are in the standings, okay? (laughs) I know when I saw them in Houston back in 2009 or 10, I forget the year, they were buried. But I wanted to see him play. So to me, when you're going to a visiting stadium, it's different than when you're going to City Field. And it's a kind of game you can go to maybe more frequently because you live here. But when it's a road stadium, I don't know, man. If I had a chance to be in Minnesota this weekend, that wouldn't have worked out for uh, many personal reasons. But if I did, if it was a different scenario, I would love to see the Mets play in Minnesota. I'd love it. I think seeing the Mets play on the road is awesome. I have been to 24 of 30 major league stadiums, and the six I'm missing, one of which is Minnesota, feel like they're very challenging to get to. By, like, when am I ever going to be there? Unless I plan out a specific trip 
to go to a specific city to see just the Mets, which is much more difficult to do as a 40-year-old man who's a father of two. Minnesota, Denver, Arlington, those are the few that jump out at me that I have not been to. There is one close one that I haven't been to. Toronto. I've never been to Sky Dome. Rogers Center. I'm sure at some point. That, that one I feel more confident about pulling off. The other big one I haven't seen, which I also feel confident about pulling off, once the schedule allows it, is San Francisco. I've never been to the old Pac Bell Park, AT&T Park, whatever the hell they call it now. And that one looks awesome. That one looks like sneaky, maybe a top stadium. Because to me right now, my favorite stadium is PNC Park. All right, a couple of other thoughts from this weekend. The Duran intro <laughs> for Minnesota's closer. I must say, as a wrestling fan and as a fan of, you know, we, we all enjoy the Edwin Diaz intro from last year. We all thought that was pretty badass. It is tremendous. You got the Undertaker music going off. You got the lights flashing. That, that to me, and there's some really good closer intros throughout baseball history. I guess the one that, that jumps out at all of us is Trevor Hoffman, Mariano Rivera. Those are probably the two, and two of the greatest closers of all time. So it's not just great intro. It's great intro for tremendous players. But Johan Duran's intro, and he's had a very good year. He's one of the better closers in all baseball, so we're not doing this over, you know, a nobody. It's, I think it's better. I, I think it's better for two reasons. A, the light aspect of it, and I usually don't like the lights flicking at a baseball game. When the Yankees hit a home run and they flick the lights, I hate it. Man, it makes me feel like I'm having a seizure. I can't stand it. When a guy's coming into the game, so it's in between innings, I don't know, I, I don't mind it as much. Now you got the drama like you're at an NBA game. But if you haven't seen it, they play the Undertaker bell. Then they lower all the lights. Then they start flicking it. And then this other song comes on the pump shop. It's not bad. Makes me uh, think the Mets have to reconsider the Edwin Diaz trumpet thing. No, I'm kidding. Maybe do something with the lights. I don't know why that one doesn't bother me. Like the light thing bothers me. When it's a home run, I'm not sure why, but it doesn't bother me when you're doing the intro to a player coming in. All right. The other story is Mike Trout. I want to address this. So Mike Trout, according to Bob Nightingale, and yes, yes, I know we all have to kind of, when there's a, when there's a, how do I say this nicely? When there's a Bob Nightingale story, you say it with a grain of salt. You know, you're not necessarily sure if what he's saying is great reporting or Nightingale reporting. But what he put out there was, if Mike Trout indicates to the Angels that he would prefer to move on, that he's ready to kind of give it up in Anaheim, they would be open to a trade. Here's what I find almost comical about this. Mike Trout signed a 12-year, $426 million contract. He is signed until 2030. Think about that. I want to pull up his exact contract under uh, Cott's contract so I can break down how much he's actually making per season. Because you hear that big figure that I just read, but what the hell does that mean? I have to think about it on a year-to-year basis. So here's where it is. All right, is. I've just pulled it up successfully. He is making not a crazy amount, by the way. It's, that's what's funny. Like It sounds worse when you hear the whole package. 
it's $35.5 million every single year with a full no trade. So $35 million a year, it's like, oh, okay, it's fine. But he's making that until 2030. Mike Trout right now is actually younger than maybe you think. He's 32 years old, and he just turned 32 years old. So if you do the math on this, 32 years old, let's say 2024 is like a 32-year-old season because he doesn't turn 33 till August. So 24, 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30. He's got seven years left on his deal. So 32, 33, 34, 35, 36, 37, 38. So between the ages of 32 and 38, he is making $35.5 million a year, which when you lay it out that way, it's not as scary as it sounds. But here's what's scary. Mike Trout doesn't play baseball consistently. And it's very difficult to look at a guy, and he is great. He's good. This is not a debating how great Mike Trout is. Even this season in missing half a year, his average was down. He only had 260, had an 860 OPS. Like his numbers weren't Trouty like. But even in his worst season in his the major league career, besides the first 40 games, that ain't bad. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like 260, a pace for 38 home runs and 100 RBIs. Like it's not bad. But it's also tough to imagine that at 32, 33, 34, 35, 36, 37, he's going to do something he hasn't done really in four years. And I want to take 2020 out because he basically played a full season in 2020. It wasn't a normal full season, but he played 53 games. So it's tough to kind of kill that. But last year, he played 119 games. Okay. Still not enough. He had awesome numbers. I don't want, this is not about his numbers. Mike Trout's amazing. In 2021, he played 36 games. And this season, he's played 82 games. So if you're the Angels, forget the icon status, because that's for them to figure out. This is not something I worry about. If he was an icon on our team, we'd have the debate. We had it about the ground. But if you're thinking strictly from a baseball standpoint, yeah. If I'm going to lose Otani, and I'm stuck with Rendon, and I got to blow the bad boy up, if Mike Trout wants to move on, and I can get some kind of massive haul because he's Mike Trout and I'm getting rid of 32, 33, 34, 35, 36, 37, making $35 million a year. Sure. But there's a couple of caveats to this. Number one, Mike Trout has a full no trade clause. So if Mike Trout says to the angels, I'm ready to move on, that's not the complete sentence. It would be, I'm ready to move on too. And then he could basically tell the team he wants to go to and say to the Angels, and if that doesn't work out, I ain't going anywhere. We have seen players use that power, and he has it. So I guess I have to give an opinion on us, right? Because we're all thinking, okay, well, what about us? I'm very mixed because a part of me would say, boy, he is one of the great players of our generation. He has won three MVPs with four other second-place finishes. I say that because that means seven times in his major league career. He has been so good that he has been either the best player in the American League or the second-best player in the American League. So the risk part of me, the gambling part of me, says, I got a chance to get that. Despite everything telling me he's not going to be healthy, sign me up. So my answer to all this is it comes down to what I have to give up. If somehow 
teams were so turned off by the remainder of this contract that enough teams said, yeah, you know, I know it's Mike Trout, but I can't commit to all that money that's left. And the Angels looked at it as, you know what, we just got to part ways with this contract, and you could get that by just absorbing his contract. Angels aren't paying down a dime. You are absorbing the remainder of that contract I just described. Then knowing Cohen's money, I would take that risk most of the time. I would say, hey, it's only a money risk. But if it means you have to give up a lot of young prospects that either you just acquired or are part of your farm system, I can't take that risk. (coughs) That's how I view it. Money risk, sign me up. If it fails, eh, it fails. You know what I mean? Okay, cost me a lot of money. Mike Trout wasn't Mike Trout, but I gave it a try. But Jet Williams, no. Luis Angel Acuna, who I just got, no. Drew Gilbert, who I just got, no. So I do it on the, and I don't want to say on the cheap, because I'm taking his contract, which I don't know how major league teams would view that. Like, I don't know how many major league teams would fall all over themselves knowing he hasn't had a real full healthy season in four years. But the biggest concern we all should have is if Mike Trout wants to move on, there's probably one place he's going to be willing to move on to, and that unfortunately is in our division with the Philadelphia Phillies, considering his growing up there, his fandom with the Eagles and all the Philadelphia teams. That would be a major, major risk. So we'll spend more time on that. As the offseason approaches, we've got four games coming up against the Arizona Diamondbacks at City Field. I'm excited to get to a game or two. I got shut out of that last homestand with my pneumonia and my sickness and all that crap. So it'll be good to get out there at City Field. I'll tell you one night I won't be at City Field, and that's Monday night, because that's Jets Bills night, baby. But we'll give you a pot after the series. And also next week, I'm still working on it because I'm examining it. We'll do a deep dive into David Stearns, the potential new president of the New York Mets. You can email the pod anytime, thericob at gmail.com, thericob at gmail.com. We appreciate you listening, especially now. It's September, football's going on. Most people don't care about these Met games, but we will always be here after every Met series. We are loyal to you. Pete's not here because he's working, not because he isn't loyal to you. He's got a great new job. Uh, with the Giants. So every time the Giants plays on location, he's working his tuck us off. So Sundays will be a little bit different because he does the Giants stuff. But he's done a great job all year. Again, RicoB at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening and downloading Rico Bronia. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronia podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times. 